Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host for today, Chris Knudsen, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. And in today's episode, I talk with Jonathan Mockin about electricity infrastructure resilience. But before we dive into the civil engineering conversation, I want to take a moment and recognize our sponsor for this show, PPI. I have some exciting news. PPI, our exclusive exam prep podcast sponsor, has given away $100 Amazon gift cards every month to our listeners. For more information on how to qualify, make sure to listen to my announcement later on in this episode. I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation. It's Jonathan Mockin, who's a senior director of system resiliency and strategic coordination in the ITS division of PJM Interconnection, where he works to build enterprise-level resilience in the areas of business continuity, physical and cybersecurity, risk management, operations, and planning. He served as Vice President, U.S. Operations for Electric Infrastructure Security Council, developing best practices for government and industry to improve the resilience of life support infrastructure systems from black sky events, which we'll get into in this episode, something many of you probably have never heard of. I certainly hadn't before this uh, interview. Now, Jonathan's previously served as the Director of the Illinois Emergency Management Agency, where he oversaw Illinois' disaster preparedness and response, nuclear safety, and homeland security programs. And he's also a highly decorated Army officer, having deployed to Kosovo and two combat tours in Iraq. And he currently supports the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center at the Department of Homeland Security in his Army Reserve capacity. A graduate of West Point with a Bachelor of Science degree, Jonathan also holds a Master's in Business Administration from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Jonathan comes with a lot of experience in disaster and emergency planning, resiliency, and in this episode, we're going to get into all of this. So get ready for a conversation about infrastructure resilience, black sky events, and what civil engineers can do to help reduce risk to the electricity infrastructure system in this episode of the Civil Engineer Podcast with Jonathan Monken. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for this week's Civil Engineering Conversation. I'm joined by Jonathan Mockin. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, something that's of professional interest to myself and I know has been of uh, deep professional interest to you over your career. And it has to do with regards to resilience in systems, uh, resilience planning. And, and specifically in this episode, we're talking about electricity infrastructure resilience. I know that you've got extensive experience in this arena and, you know, just again, in resilience of infrastructure systems and crisis planning, would you mind describing for us that maybe at a high level, three resiliency issues that our electrical infrastructure faces in the U.S. today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the hard part about the question is that there are so many different issues to focus on, but I can tell you that from the industry's perspective, there are a handful of things that are disproportionately impacting what we see as the future resilience of the grid. So. One of the issues is related to the change in load growth or load demand that we would see on the system. And the hard part is we place a lot of emphasis on being able to try and anticipate how much electricity people are going to use, not just today, not just tomorrow, not just over the course of the next week, but 
we plan out the grid in 15-year intervals because that's what it takes to do large-scale infrastructure projects. And what we've seen, if you take the last 15 years as a sample of what we were anticipating and where we were anticipating to be today, it's a very different picture. The growth hasn't necessarily met what we thought it was going to be. And the nature of the usage of electricity is definitely changing. There are more devices out there that are using electricity. We're more dependent on it holistically, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're using more of it. We're just using it in a different way. That creates a lot of challenges. So another one is related to the fuel mix of where we get our electricity from. There's a lot of different types of generation sources out there. You have the long-term legacy things. You have coal, you have nuclear, you have natural gas. And you have all of the emerging technologies related to renewables and distributed energy resources. And trying to chart that out is very, very closely aligned with predicting the resilience of the system. If you don't have good diversity in that system, if you're over-reliant on one particular fuel source, you can find yourself in the worst of circumstances, which is creating those unintended single points of vulnerability. And that presents a unique challenge because there's a lot of forces that determine how we get to the fuel mix that we have. You know, when you see low prices of natural gas, then everybody starts building natural gas, and that's the direction things move. So trying to be able to harness that in a positive way and understand that we want to improve that mix is is very, very big to ensuring a resilient system in the long term. And then the last thing is we're just seeing a significant upspike in all of these examples of growing interdependencies between these major infrastructure systems. So there are so many other things that Even if your system is functioning nominally, there are so many dependencies on these other systems that we ultimately don't control. We don't have the responsibility to plan for. We don't have the responsibility for operations in that environment that we really need to be functioning very, very at a very high level for us to be able to do what we need to do. And so maybe if you wouldn't mind explaining perhaps the interdependencies that exist with, let's say, the natural gas and communications infrastructure systems specifically. These are the two most important as we look at the operation of the grid and we look at what we rely on the most. Communications and natural gas right now, as we stand, are number one and number two, for sure. So when you look at the communications component of things, the way that the grid is operated now is increasingly relying on automation. It's a very, very distributed form of of operation for how we work. And for an organization like mine, which is a regional transmission operator, and we're the largest grid operator in the world, covering 61 million people in 13 states, you are entirely dependent on constant linkages for data that's coming from all of these different providers at the transmission owner and distribution level. We have to have data connectivity to make sure that we can dispatch generation resources over hundreds of miles, and just to maintain a constant situational awareness on the health of the grid. All of those things require a huge backbone of communications. Now, generally speaking, while some companies have some internal communications capabilities or they've developed some of their own networks or systems, largely what you're looking at is the commercial communication systems providing that connectivity. And the hard thing about it is it's not always our within our purview to be able to have visibility on that system. We don't necessarily set any of the reliability standards, if you want to call it that, or the resilient standards for those systems. It's really just how those big boys on the block in terms of communications companies are hardening their systems, providing backup generation or or backup battery assets for all of their cell towers and all these things that are supporting the grid. And what you get into is that classic chicken and the egg model, which is all of those communication systems are totally dependent on electricity. So looking at that interplay of it is 
creates a significant challenge. And the same thing is true when you look on the natural gas side of things. As I mentioned earlier, the low price of natural gas due to fracking and the, the availability of natural gas has created a circumstance where we've seen a huge turnover in our fleet of generators in our territory and in many areas around the United States and globally where people are moving very quickly to natural gas. And what you see there is a circumstance where they don't have significant storage on location. Massive natural gas storage is not something that's found in, as a commonplace uh, source of fuel. So typically what you see is just pipeline systems that are providing it. So this is a just-in-time delivery system of natural gas at 34 miles an hour through a pipeline. And if that is interdicted or stopped or reduced in any way, that has significant cascading effects on the availability of natural gas for electricity generation in a way that we don't see similar problems with energy sources like coal that has 60 days of coal sitting on the ground, or even renewables that presumably, as long as the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, would have access to electricity. It creates a unique vulnerability that we have to keep a close eye on. Absolutely. And, and I've got personal experience of having lived through something like this out in New Mexico when I was a base installation engineer in the Air Force, and we had a freak freeze that came through. And it Really, it, it showed me the interdependencies between electrical systems, communications, natural gas. We had this really was a systematic degradation of the electrical system that led to a failure in pumping stations for natural gas delivery. You know, in New Mexico, when you had temperatures that were below zero Fahrenheit, which tends to never happen. And it was uh, very much a firsthand experience that I had that led me into wanting to know more about resiliency and, uh, and the infrastructure planning from that perspective. For everyone that's listening, you know, just to kind of hit again what Jonathan had mentioned on the three of the key resiliency issues being load growth, fuel mix of uh, the generation systems and the interdependencies, and uh, that takeaway, again, for engineers when it comes to the planning piece is the planning for the 15-year intervals, which is, Jonathan, that's the first time I've heard that. So that was an interesting fact on how planning is done for load. It definitely presents a unique situation for us because that 15-year timeline, interestingly enough, is whenever we want to add a major transmission line, which is typically done if you see areas of load congestion or, or changing demand or you need to reroute your power flows in a way that the system is not currently constructed to do, it takes literally 12 years to do the siting for all of those things, getting all the permitting done, making sure that your routes are clear, everything is set up the way you need to do, and then it takes two to three years to build the line. We don't plan for 15 years. We literally can't get it done. I never really realized the level of effort that was uh, involved on the, uh, the permitting side. So tied to this, as we're sitting here talking about infrastructure systems, you're likely familiar with the American Society of Civil Engineers, the ASCE infrastructure report cards that they issue every year. And the one for 2016 was released just recently, and it gave the U.S.'s energy systems, which includes electrical distribution and generation a barely passing grade of a D plus. With your experience, does that assessment fit with what you've seen? And again, with changes in the administration back in the United States and some promised increases of investment in infrastructure in the U.S., where do you think that money needs to go first? What components do you think need to be addressed first? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's something that uh, preoccupies a significant chunk of our time of trying to figure out where do you get your best bang for the buck? Because there's not an unlimited pool of money out there. You can't do every infrastructure project that you want to. But I can tell you that the energy industry's perspective, a growing investment in infrastructure is essential. So there's no doubt that what you have within the bulk electric system and the bulk power system in the United States is you have a very, very wide disparity in the modernization and 
quality of infrastructure at all levels. So you have 6,400 utility companies, everything from small municipal operations to co-ops to large investor-owned utilities. And what you see there is a huge spread in terms of how modern, how automated, how efficient all of those systems are. And that patchwork of systems is something that creates those types of vulnerabilities that are unintended because you really want to be able to operate or interoperate as smoothly as possible. But that's not always something that you can accomplish if you don't have the right level of modernization of systems. So for us, we look at our critical linchpins in the much larger system of some of it's going to come down to new transmission lines because power flows are not really geographically set up the same way that they were 15 years ago in terms of which direction the majority of electricity is flowing. We constantly try and forecast where we think energy needs to move from based on where we expect more generation assets to be constructed in the future and what type of generation assets they'll be. And then where they're going to, where we think most of the power is going to get used. And both of those variables change on a regular basis. And trying to keep up with that means that we have to keep investing in that transmission infrastructure that we can deliver that electricity from where it's generated to where it's needed over long distances in a changing environment. Other linchpins for us go down to the substation level of where we step that electricity down from a voltage perspective from the transmission system down to the distribution level or between transmission providers. And those are, again, an area where we see, you know, infrastructure that's 60, 70 years old that was installed at a time where everything about our grid was very, very different. And we need to modernize some of those things. The biggest challenge there is those are not just sitting on shelves at your big box store that you can just run in and pick up a, you know, a high voltage transformer that you can't just pick up a, and build a substation overnight. That's another one of those long lead time construction projects that you really need to plan out, and those are incredibly expensive. Both of those things really fit into a category of infrastructure investment that I think is absolutely vital, certainly from the the bulk power system perspective. And then there's a lot of things that can be done at the distribution level to improve, you know, smart grid technologies, improved automation to make sure that you can do more effective and real-time balancing of the system to avoid those circumstances where you see unpredictable events occur and the grid is not really designed to react quickly enough to be able to mitigate that. That's good insight on, on where that, uh, hopefully that funding will end up making its way as we, uh, fingers crossed here, that we can get the level of investment needed to get the infrastructure back up above these uh, the barely passing grades. Now, I, I know your experience as the director of Illinois' emergency management agency would have exposed you to emergency management planning for both natural and man-made events because that, that was really the bulk of your responsibility. One of the threat sets I imagine that you had to prepare for is something known as a black sky hazard. So I had to do a little research on myself, and it may be a term that many of the listeners aren't even familiar with. So would you mind explaining what a black sky hazard is? Yeah, absolutely. So other than just a cool term that kind of catches your attention, which is part of the intent there is, I think what people are probably very familiar with is is hearing the term black swan, which really talks about something that's an occurrence that's, from a statistical perspective, highly improbable, very, very unlikely for happening, but such a unique set of circumstances somehow coincide and creates an event that people had a very, very difficult time predicting or using traditional scientific methods just would have assessed as such a low probability that they don't need to touch it. Black sky is really the convergence of that level of probability, if not even a little bit higher from a probability perspective, but it's something that directly affects the grid and affects infrastructure. 
And so what we look at in the industry is what we classify as black sky hazards. So there's only six things, six buckets that really fall into the level of impact that would reach a black sky level. And three of them are malicious, meaning that they're man-made and, and three of them are naturally occurring. And on the malicious side, what you have is a cyber attacks that can happen at a variety of different scales in a variety of different ways. Kinetic activity. So there are instances and examples that have happened just in the last few years where people have deliberately attacked physical infrastructure within the electricity system. And if that's done in a coordinated fashion, that can have significant ramifications. You also have circumstances of things like EMP, electromagnetic pulse, which is obviously a very large strategic threat, but it's still something that needs to be considered and understood as well as it can be and mitigated against within the industry. And then on the naturally occurring side, what you have is things that we have seen, but maybe not seen with the level of severity that would generate a black sky. And so one of those is severe terrestrial weather. So if you have a a really bad hurricane that hits a lot of critical infrastructure, you can have a a long-term outage that's the result of that particular event. Then you have things like space weather, solar flares that can have significant impacts on the grid overall. And it's something that we know is really a statistical certainty that it's going to happen again. It's just a question of how bad will it be and when will that occur? And then you have uh, something like an earthquake, which at the Illinois Emergency Management Agency, quite honestly, is how I really got involved in this whole strategic planning process around these large-scale threats, which is, in that particular instance, the New Madrid Seismic Zone, which is in the central United States and would have significant ramifications if there were to be a 7.0 or greater in the central U.S., it would have vast and and widespread impacts to the bulk electric system, among many, many other things and life support systems. So really the common thread for black sky is it's something that's capable of generating a widespread long duration outage that exceeds the scale and the duration of outages that we've ever seen previously to a point where we really have to take a totally different perspective on how we plan for it. To kind of actually really parse apart that last statement you made is what would, might be some of the mitigation steps that could be taken at the regional level? Because I have to assume that this type of planning has to occur at, at a much larger level. So what kind of steps might be taken at that regional level to lessen the duration of outages uh, from either these man-made or the malicious attacks? Yeah, a lot of it's at the front end is trying to understand the scope and scale. And it goes back to that initial question and that initial conversation we had about some of those resilience-related issues within industries. So gaining a better understanding of that interdependencies issue, as an example, is something that needs to be understood by all parties that are involved. And as you mentioned, given the uniqueness of the scale of it, this is definitely not a a one industry solution to the problem. This is something that will require that concept of a whole community of resilience that incorporates several different industries and infrastructures. It definitely needs to include all levels of government from federal down to state to local And it really takes a concerted planning effort to understand that in that type of environment, trying to apply the traditional models of emergency response and recovery is really an exercise in futility. And this is something that I take to heart as an emergency manager is there's a common misconception there that if the scale exceeds what you have planned for, what you've anticipated, that you'll just do what you normally do, but you'll just do more of it. You know, you'll just scale up those plans that you had and just do more of it. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) No, no, you really just can't. Well, if I just work twice as hard, then I'll be able to handle a problem that's twice as large. And that fallacy has to be debunked in this environment that you have to do deliberate planning for a much larger scale event and focus on survivability 
of the system and not just the recovery of it. And this is probably a good follow-on question then to ask for you, because a lot of the engineers that are listening to this have been involved in, they do planning. They're doing planning that's based on reliability or efficiency, effectiveness, optimization. That's typically what engineers get involved in. I'd be interested to hear your perspective. How is resilience planning different from this other type of planning that many of the engineers are going to be used to, which is, again, reliability or efficiency? It's a great question because, quite honestly, within the industry, that's where the expertise lies right now is that reliability and efficiency, those standards, that's what we've been measured on for years. That's really the most easily quantifiable metrics that we have within the electricity industry to figure out how are we doing. So when we look back at that infrastructure scorecard and see a D plus, when it comes to efficiency and reliability right now, that's a completely unacceptable grade. There's absolutely no way that, especially if it's an investor-owned utility, that is a, a failing grade, anything that goes below an A. And, and part of that is because we're victims of our own success. The reliability levels are so high now, the efficiency of the system is so good that I think to a degree, people see it and say, well, you know what, we're doing really well. We don't really need to worry about this as much because the grid is robust, the grid is extensive, we have all of these systems in place to be able to help us out. And so the first and foremost, like any good scientific progress or systems engineering process, you have to try and figure out what your quantifiable metrics are for success. And that's where it's very loosely defined on the resilient side of things. Now, many components of efficiency and reliability can be incorporated in this, but it's not a one-for-one -one swap of saying, well, if I'm doing well in reliability, then I'm doing well in resilience. And that's where it comes to a growing and concerted effort within the community of trying to pull together these folks, pull together these engineers, better understand how we can measure the success or failure of where we're going from a resilience standpoint, and then try and apply those metrics in a very real way for that 15-year planning process and all the way down to the minute-to-minute -minute operation of the grid to make sure that our system operators understand that if they're in a resilience level event, a black sky level event, that the operator functions are going to be different in that environment. And it really needs to cover everywhere in between. So right now, I think it's a growing issue within the industry. And I think that first and absolutely essential step is trying to identify specific to certain levels of systems within the grid what are your what are those quantifiable goals that you're trying to hit so that you can measure the success of your progress? This is probably a, a question that I should have asked right on the front end because resilience can mean different things to different people. I've got my definition of what I think resilience is, and it, it can also be viewed at either from an individual like a person's level or a system or, or process level. So I'd be curious to, to know what your definition of resilience is, especially when it relates it's, as it relates to infrastructure. It's a great question, and you're absolutely right where if you ask 10 people the definition of resilience to them, you're going to get 10 different answers. It's totally inevitable, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges associated with resolving this problem is there needs to be, to a degree, a common definition. And so from my perspective, if you look at just the dictionary definition of resilience, you're really talking about elasticity. It's all about your ability to bounce back from a particular event. And to me, within that definition lies the most important factor, which is you have to understand that the impact, the effect is going to happen. There's a, a growing area of thought out there that says, well, you know, it's all about prevention. Let's stop the bad thing from happening and then we will be protected and we will be resilient. And it's not that that isn't a critical component here. You don't just throw your hands up and say, well, it's going to happen. So there's nothing we can do about it. But when you look at some of the classes of hazards that I mentioned earlier, 
you're not going to be able to prevent a solar flare. You can't stop that thing from happening. And so you have to operate under the assumption that there is going to be a significant impact to your system. And I think that really alters how you approach the problem and how you develop your plan to mitigate against that particular hazard or that particular threat. And that's what we really need to turn the corner on is it's not about ignoring the probabilistic nature of some of these particular events and saying, well, it's probably not going to happen, so I don't need to worry about it. It's about trying to find those common threads that give you the ability to at least improve your preparation or increase your resilience related to those, each of those things by finding those common threads of effort that can help you out in multiple areas. And some of it, as I mentioned, comes down to how you operate the grid in that environment of trying to execute, as we call it in the industry, black start, which is if we lost everything, what are the generators that are going to provide our islands of electricity that we're going to build back out from, from the inside out instead of what we typically do? So take the O3 blackout as an example. Normally, we pull electricity from outside the affected area in and then build off of that. So kind of prop the dominoes back up from where they stopped falling and work from the outside in. In a black sky environment, you have to do the exact opposite. You have to build from the inside out because you're not going to be in a circumstance where it's going to be easy because of the scale or scope of the event to find that external source to start building from the outside in. So that's a fundamental shift in how you approach it. And I think having that definition of resilience is important to making sure that you're approaching it with the right mentality. For civil engineers listening to this, of course, we're talking about the electrical infrastructure system, but this can also be applied in your thoughts and your planning that, that goes towards roadways, railways, water pipeline systems, waste systems. It comes back again to elasticity, which has to be considered and should be considered in conjunction with reliability and efficiency. So we're talking two different components that have that are interrelated and they have to be considered in such a fact in order to make your infrastructure system able to be able to bounce back if some kind of an issue occurs. Jonathan, we're hearing a lot right now about cybersecurity and cyber attacks. It's all over the news, and I really honestly think it's going to continue to be in the news and certainly a major threat that industry, companies, and governments are going to have to face uh, going far into the future. So be curious to hear your thoughts about how industry and what industry can do to help protect our nation's electrical infrastructure from cyber attacks, or at least give operators a chance to limit the impact from a cyber attack. To your point, we're only going to hear more about it, and I think it's warranted. I mean, there's a reason why. And so there are several reasons why cybersecurity continues to rise up when you're looking at how companies invest, what threats or hazards companies are focused on in terms of what they assess to be the highest area of vulnerability for their system. And it's because I mentioned earlier, when we talk about smart grid and the increase in automation, we talk about Internet of Things devices that are connected to the grid. All of these things are leading themselves to increasing what we would refer to as the attack surface area from a cyber perspective, meaning there are just more potential points of entry. A watershed moment for the electricity industry was in December of 2015 when a grid operator in the Ukraine was attacked and 225,000 people lost power for six hours as a result of it. And there was a, a thought, a general thought in the industry prior to that event that it was highly unlikely that a cyber threat actor would be able to physically take down the grid just simply by executing that external intrusion. And ultimately demonstrated, clearly that's not the case. And I think that really 
got the attention of a lot of people in the industry to say, this is something we need to spend a lot more time on. To make matters worse or more frustrating, depending on how you look at it, that was really just an operator level problem where this, the oldest tricks are the best ones, where this is a, an employee that worked there was fished and they introduced malicious code into their system and given enough time with an intruder in your system, eventually they're going to get to the level of user access and permissions that they need to, to perpetrate some type of operational impact. And that's what they saw. That's a really difficult thing when you have, as I mentioned, 6,400 utilities with hundreds of thousands of employees all trying to, that really need to meet that lowest bar to clear of cyber hygiene, of making sure that they're making the right choices. So that's one part of it is industry education of just saying, recognize the threat, make sure that your employees understand the threat. And that's the low end of the spectrum. Then you go all the way to the high end of the spectrum of realizing that there's a lot of emerging tools and technology that can help you with you know, whether you're talking about artificial intelligence and how it can be used for intrusion detection, threat isolation and characterization, all of those things are part of it from our perspective of at least being able to identify when something's in your system and trying to understand how significant that is, assessing it quickly, closing the door, and then trying to really recover from whatever effects that you saw on your system. All of those things fit within the spectrum of what we need to do. And unfortunately, that is a very, very Herculean task to do all of those things. And what's really going to take is that industry coordination, industry to government coordination, because we don't have all the resources in the world to get it done. But collectively, whether you're talking about the military, whether you're talking about uh, federal departments or state departments, this is something that we have to coordinate on. For the civil engineers out there, this is not something that's just communication systems or the electrical grid. You know, this again applies to our transportation infrastructure systems. It applies to wastewater and water production plants. Anything that has connectivity, which at this point in our lives around the world, everything has connectivity. Jonathan, these threats that that are out there that face the electrical and the electricity distribution systems, you know, they're unfortunately they're just they're prevalent everywhere. So you're right. This is something that's going to be out there. There's going to be a lot more information about it. And I think on this show, we're going to continue to look at uh, bringing guests on that can provide different perspectives around this because it's certainly something that's not going to go away. For our civil engineers that are out there listening, you know, we talk about and this is staying on the cyber cyber piece of the business. We hear a lot about malicious code and uh, points of entry, and we're thinking server racks and things like that. One of the questions that I would have is, do you see, are there actual physical barriers that can be used to improve resilience, or is it just the cyber defense? You really have to take a holistic approach here, because if you look at how physical security and cybersecurity is related to one another, they're completely intertwined, and largely to a degree that I think is not recognized often enough. You can have the best cyber defense ever. If you don't have good physical security to marry up with that, it doesn't really matter. And an example that I would give is that if you have a circumstance where you have all these great IT protection systems, you have the best firewall that money can buy and you have the best detection systems that you can get, but you don't have good physical security around where your data center is or where your operators have access to and what areas they have access to, you're already opening yourself up to a circumstance where malicious code or, or malware can still be introduced anyway into your system. And so recognizing the relation between those two things is absolutely vital. And the same thing is true of physical security and say, okay, well, I have you know the highest fences and the thickest walls and the most guards and the most cameras and all that. 
again, that's the difficult nature of the cyber threat is all of those things can be rendered all but meaningless if you're not protecting those connectivity systems that go into those facilities or connect to all that. So I think the most important thing is just recognizing that those two things are two sides of the same coin and they need to be coordinated. So something that we see, and this is a a challenge from an operator level and an engineering level is between IT systems and OT systems for operations technology, bridging that gap of making sure that the engineers who are operating the system are able to recognize when they see a something or an effect that is unique. So typically they would apply their base of logic and their experience to an outage. A breaker is tripped, a relay is thrown, an outage is created. Uh, there's some type of physical effect on an area of the system. Normally they would just apply their own experience to it and say, well, I've seen something like that before. It's probably this, it's probably this type of malfunction. We can send an engineer out there and they can fix it. And they don't think to call the IT department and say, we may have something that is of interest to you because this was a unique outage and it's something that we don't see with great frequency. You want to make sure that operators are recognizing the effects that could be generated from a cyber attack as early as possible. So you don't find yourself in a circumstance where somebody executed a successful test run of malicious code and flipped one breaker. Nobody really called a lot of attention to it because it was just one thing and it wasn't a big deal. And meanwhile, they were just testing their ability to bridge that gap between IT and OT. The same thing is true on the IT side, where you can't assume that everything you see is the result of a cyber attack. You need to have a good understanding of what those operating engineers are seeing out there so that you can recognize that if there's something unique happening in the IT system, you can try and anticipate what the physical effects of that is going to be so that you can communicate that to your operations folks so they know what to look for as well. Yeah, absolutely. And for everyone that's listening, and we'll link this up in the show notes, if you are interested in this topic, I recommend going over to our sister podcast, the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, and listen to episode 144 with Michael Leggett, who talks to us about resiliency and the power grid as well. There's a lot of research that's being done in these arenas, a lot of thought that's going on in this, and it's uh, definitely there's a lot more to be done to make sure that our electrical systems uh, here in the United States are, are secure and, and safe uh, for, for use. Jonathan, I'd be interested to know your perspective because you've been involved in emergency management and you've been involved in resiliency planning and you still are for many, many years. What do you see as perhaps the best role for civil engineers to help in resilience planning to reduce the risks, reduce threats, and develop better electricity infrastructure systems? For civil engineers, this is so in the wheelhouse in terms of the significance of the role that they play is a lot of times you create these resilience vulnerabilities because you're not having system level planning. What you're having is one-off planning that's happening either industry specific or project specific. And I'm sure every civil engineer out there would love to have the opportunity to say, you just get a clean sheet of paper, you get to design a system from scratch, you get to make sure that those types of interdependencies and and crossover areas are all addressed in the plan. That's the perfect world, right? I think what we see right now is uh, recognizing that because of that growing interdependency, that civil engineering space and that system level planning space of making sure that those things are recognized and accounted for from an engineering perspective as they're being upgraded, because there's always going to be life cycle replacements of all these infrastructure systems. It's an inevitability. We want it to happen sooner rather than later and raise that D plus a little bit higher as much as possible. But as we go through that process, that's where the civil engineering space is going to be so relevant 
is making sure that those factors are taken into account as that life cycle replacement is happening of those infrastructure systems. You can't just think about one system at a time anymore. You absolutely have to think about how those systems interact with one another. And it could be that the efforts that you need to take, the things that you need to invest in, are not that expensive if you do it at the front end. And like any good engineer, you'll recognize that retrofitting is always more costly and typically less effective than being able to bake that in at the front end when you're doing the installation. And we need to apply that mentality here. Absolutely. So everyone that's out there listening, plenty of work to be done, plenty of planning to be involved in. So I appreciate your insights and your thoughts on that, Jonathan. Thank you very much. So we'll be back in just a couple of moments for the civil engineering hot seat segment. So stand by. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for the Civil Engineering Hot Seat segment, which in today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. If you're preparing for the Civil PE exam, you probably know that the Civil Engineering Reference Manual by Michael Lindeberg is the book to use. Michael Lindeberg is actually the founder and president of PPI, the leader in FE and PE exam prep. PPI has new courses available for the civil PE exam that offer complete coverage of not only the morning breadth exam, but also your choice of afternoon depth exams. The course presents over 60 hours of new content and walks you through tons of exam-like practice problems. When you enroll in the live online prep course, PPI also includes on-demand lectures for free so you can start studying while you wait for the course to begin. And through October 2017, PPI will be choosing two of our podcast listeners per month to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you enroll in this course. To enter for the raffle, just visit www.ppitopass.com forward slash civil prep. Again, that's www.ppi, the number two, pass slash civil prep. And from there, you'll need to choose your course and check out. On the checkout page, enter the promo code PREP and then complete your enrollment. Again, you need to enter the promo code PREP before completing your enrollment to qualify for the gift card. You'll be notified on the first of the month if you won the $100 gift card. Now, I use PPI for my PE exam prep, so I feel confident in recommending that you check out this prep course. Plus, you could win $100. Good luck. All right, so Jonathan, to close up today's interview, I got two final questions for you. And the first one's, what's a good general resource that you might recommend for the engineers listening to go out and get? Could be a book or maybe some websites. It's going to help them increase their knowledge about infrastructure resilience planning. Yeah, if you want to check it out from really that 30,000-foot level and wrap your mind around what we're looking at and what we talk about, specifically with things like black sky threats, uh, there's a series of books called EPRO Handbooks, which is Electric Grid Protection Handbooks. There's two out there. Uh, so one of them has two volumes. One of them has one. And so the first one, EPRO Handbook 1, is something that you can get at EISCouncil.org. And uh, the PDF version of it is there. There's a second book in the series that has two volumes, one that's focused on water and wastewater systems and those interdependencies. The other one's on natural gas and fuel. If you want to take a look at some of the stuff that PJM is doing, my company, PJM Interconnection, you can go to pjm.com. There's a lot of resources there, and there's some neat tools if you just want to see what's happening on the grid today. As I mentioned, we're the largest grid operator in the world. If you want to see how we're working today, uh, that's an opportunity to go in there and take a look. So it, it gives you a good kind of baseline of what's out there. Fabulous. And we'll make sure that we've got links to those resources in the show notes uh, so everybody can just click on those and go right to them. So I appreciate that. So I got one final question for you. This is the, the standard that we ask uh, each of our guests on the Civil Engineering Podcast. And that is if, if you got in an elevator with a civil engineer and you had 30, 40 seconds or so with him or her, you had to give them some career advice in just that short period of time. 
what would it be? In this case, I would say take a look at where things are headed right now from an infrastructure planning standpoint and try and identify those areas of relative white space or areas that are very underserved right now or underutilized in terms of leveraging engineers to solve some of these problems. And this infrastructure resilience problem is not going away. It's only going to get more complicated. It's only going to require more smart minds and planning to address it. And I think that's a good rule of thumb is that as much as you can look forward for what some of those problems are that are emerging, absorb as much information as you can about it and make sure that, uh, that your skill set is well suited to try and address some of those shortfalls. That's great advice, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to join me on the call today. So thank you very much. Always good to talk to you, Chris, and good to reconnect and, and not in a disaster this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, hey, everybody that's out there, just remember you can go and you can take a look at the show notes for today's episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Just go in there, look for today's episode, number 58, and you're going to find a summary of all the key points that were discussed in today's episode, as well as links to all the resources, websites, and books that were mentioned. You can also leave Anthony and I a question. Just go ahead, leave it there in the comments section, or visit the Ask Us tab. Click on that, drop in some comments. If you've got a question, drop that in there. Both Anthony and I monitor all those comments, and we're going to respond to you if you leave us one. We're looking forward to hearing from you. And until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.